Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who help us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. Today, I speak with Adriano Renner who lives in Switzerland and creates art that he shares on Instagram under the pseudonym Proxima. His account is linked in the show notes. After being inspired by artists including fashion design duo Fecal Matter, who channel a very post-human aesthetic, Adriano started creating his own work. Whilst he does use digital features, mostly Adriano uses organic materials that he sources from nature. He shapes and moulds them in ways that make them look like they are coming out of his flesh or interwoven with his facial features. The result is dramatic, organic-looking creations that are entangled with the human body. In this episode, we talk about Adriano's artistic inspiration, and he speaks with both vulnerability and humour about his experience with emetophobia, which is an intense phobia of vomiting. He explains the impact this phobia has on his life and his relationship with his body, and ultimately how it has come to deeply inform his art. Adriano's art has developed and evolved with him, and he uses it as an archive to document his recovery. I loved this chat with Adriano and hearing about his unique story. I hope you all enjoy listening too. I'd like to start by saying I'm really honoured to have you here. Proxima or Proxima? Oh, I don't know. How do you say it? I speak French, so I usually say it with a French accent. And that would be simply like Proxima. Proxima. But you can call me Adriano because it's my real name and it feels odd to be called by my alias. This is more like the sound of a project rather than an alias, like an artist alias, you know. So you can call me by just my name and I'm fine with that. Okay, well, Adriano, known as Proxima on Instagram, the thing that drew me to your Instagram account and your artwork is this amazing way that you use objects and organic materials, but with digital manipulation or technologized kind of imagery. And just to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of the sort of images you post, you do lots of self-portraits where you're either nude or semi-clothed and you're wearing your art or your art is kind of adorning you it's protruding from your skin or it's protruding from your body it's sort of entangled and growing with you and there's this sort of inseparability between you and your art and it looks like it's sort of organic matter and some of it is organic matter is that right yeah yeah i would say like half of it usually it's close to vegetation lots of plants and leaves recently i worked on more like dry feeling of organic i wouldn't what use do the you word mean by that wood uh, old wood old leaves clay something that if you try to press it it's gonna break and not make bubbles and become liquid like something where the water disappeared from so i guess um, your apartment is full of loads of dried wood <laughs> waiting yeah, to I mean, be turned I, I into can, art i can show you here i bought like boxes to oh, yeah. uh, storage stuff and i guess like half of those boxes are that kind of materials it's been there for so long that sometimes i'm like i don't even want to create with those anymore because i feel like i'm Artistically, lately, I'm like somewhere else. It evolved a bit. Yeah, but sometimes I can dig 
in the storage box and find something very inspiring. And some other times I will create like with nothing, like the last piece I did, it's not out yet, but it's gonna be out soon. I did it like in one day and I was at my parents' home and I was like, okay, I have just this Saturday to make something very cool and I need to freestyle. And I did something very creative. I guess this is like my biggest piece mm. and the one I'm like the most proud of, you know? That's so cool. And when you say it's not out yet, you mean when it's out is when you post it on Instagram. That's when yeah, you this, can't this is what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Publishing. Exactly. Yeah. Because it was a local magazine that I'm collaborating with. They asked me to make something for the fourth issue, but it got postponed and delayed because, you know, how do you say when you do it like for free, like a hobby, you're not getting paid for it. Yeah. A labor of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the name of the magazine? It's called Etat des Choses, which I would translate in English to the state of things. The state of things, that's cool. Yeah. And your Instagram bio, it reads R&D for research and development. Yeah. The man of the future through sustainable art. And then it says human only. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about that, that there's this, this idea of evolution and development. I think as an artist, the things that inspires me and the aesthetic I'm trying to create and share, of course, they evolve. If you take any artist, even in the very big mainstream field, just, I don't know, take Beyonce or Rihanna, the last album doesn't sound like the first one because like the influences, the tones in general evolves. It's all about trends. So this is like a first element of answer. But the art I'm creating is always very mirrored to my own journey, like in real life, like the realizations I'm doing, the things I learn about myself or about the situations I lived like in the past. And I try to make my art reflect that. For example, about the human only in my bio, it replaced because before I wrote something like post-human aesthetics mm -hmm. and I came up with this post-human, it felt quite natural because when I started, it was all about like cyber human, etc. You know, like all the cyberpunk stuff were really in and then it evolved to a cyber human and I started to see that cyber human, post-human everywhere. I got sick of it. I wanted <laughs> to be like more avant-gardiste, you know, in French. I think you understand mm -hmm. that Avogad, word. Avant-garde, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to take over the main paradigm, you know, I feel like I have to be ahead, at least as an artist. And I'm like, I started to reflect why I was so obsessed with this, this concept of being like a cyberhuman or post-human. Of course, there is aesthetics elements that defines cyberhuman or post-human. But I try to think how I feel inside that notion of post-humanity. And I felt like it was a way for me to escape my own humanity. And I don't want to escape. I want to live like aligned with who I am and who am I? I am a human first. And before being like a post-human, an evolved human or next generation human, let's try to be just a human first. This is already like a lot. This is mm -hmm. good enough. So it was also like a bit provocative to get rid of the post-human aesthetics and to replace it, not just a human. You're kind of grounding it back into this yeah. earth and into your body and embodying exactly. it, I guess. Yeah, because... When I started the, this project, I imagined myself like ordered the character in, in my Instagram account to live like in a fantasized utopian city located in the future and also like another planet. And so, so you mean that, pro 
proxy map your alter ego in a sense on who you present exactly yeah so that alter ego is supposed to live in another planet like a new city that he built on another planet so that that defines him as a post-human because he's probably going to restart a new civilization there etc so that defines him as a post-human but i try to imagine if i really now take a spaceship and go to another planet by defying the laws of gravity and time distortion etc when I arrive on that new planet on which I can breathe and live perfectly, but where there is everything to construct, I will base the new constructions on my old references. And what are they? They are my humanity. And I think, mm. I'm sure, if you teleport me right now in the future, I'm talking like in 2000 years, you know, like in a very sci-fi manner, I think I will create stuff that recalls water, earth, trees, I don't know, stuff that we know here right now as humans mm -hmm. on this planet, you know? Yeah, you can't take the human away out of your experience. No. And a lot of post-human philosophy is actually, it's not looking at post as in what comes after human. Mm -hmm. It's looking at how we are living in this post-human condition, mm -hmm. which is post-humanism, the philosophical movement yeah. and the humanists who defined what the human is. So it's kind of moving beyond what they define the human as and looking at now that we live in this society that has advanced technology and this intense globalization and we go to the moon and we can travel space and we can, you and I can have this conversation now through our screens. And so the post-human condition and the world that we live in now, how do we define ourselves as human? Because the humanist definition of the human is outdated because it doesn't fit what we're existing in now. So in a sense, your alter ego and this fantasy city and this utopian city that he might live in, that would be post-human. But I would say we're already post-human, aren't yeah. we, in a sense that we're already in it. And I think in a way, your work, grounding it with this organic matter and the body, because there's a lot of flesh in your work, because you're often nude or semi-nude. And that fleshiness of the body, I think, is really important because it's so human. Yeah, it's exactly. you know, the fleshiness of the body is so vulnerable and breakable. There's something sort of almost newborn about nude skin, mm -hmm. where it's like a really vulnerable, exposed yeah. part of, of yourself. I think that's what's so beautiful about your work is that you're kind of challenging that normative idea of post-humanism being all about cyber mm -hmm. separation from the body. You're bringing it back to the body and the importance of the body. That's interesting, and thank you for reminding me this, because I also cancelled the posthuman word on my bio, because I learned after that it's a philosophy, which I don't know and which I don't claim being part of. And so this is also one of the reasons why I cancelled it, because I don't want to like to claim to live or create something according to posthuman rules when I'm not. Um, I think you are in a sense in that yeah. the post-human philosophy, the thing that I'm really interested in and the reason I'm doing these mm -hmm. interviews and the reason I'm doing my PhD and everything is because I see the post-human philosophy happening and there's a lot of post-human art happening at the same time. Yeah. And it's a synchronized movement taking place. And some artists, they do read quite a lot of post-humanism and they know a lot about it and others don't at all. So it's a natural, organic process of this synchronicity between, which has always happened, I think, you know, art always reflects what's going on in society, always reflects I agree. Yeah. everything, you know, art and fashion will always be a mirror to what is happening. So it's no surprise that there's artists like you who are, without realising reflecting mm -hmm. and embodying this post-human philosophy 
but the yeah. sustainable element. Why did you choose this idea of this development of you as a human in relation to sustainable art specifically? First, I think my methodology isn't like a very conscious choice. It's more like the best way I found to create something because, okay, so this is not for me. It comes from fecal matter, you know, you know, this fashion design thing project. Yeah. Artistic Uh, duo. Yeah. Yeah. I followed them. I guess when I arrived on Instagram, it was one of the first people I encountered and I was amazed by what they were doing. I thought the art was very interesting, especially in that era. And I think it was maybe in in one of their interviews, they said, we do low budget with high design or low budget, high fashion, something like that. Low budget, high fashion. I mean, I beg to differ because they do have those amazing flesh shoes, but they're about $10,000, aren't they? No, yeah, of course. And they have a Depop page. They have a Depop, a Fecal Matter Depop page. For anyone that doesn't know who Fecal Matter are, we're not talking about shit. We're talking about the artistic duo that you can find on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, of course. How do you say their Instagram handle? Matière Fécale. Matière Fécale. So a a nicer... French accent. Yeah, but it, it means, in... means just like the same as fecal matter in English. And I think I always say it in English because in French, it looks like we're talking about concrete shit, but like in a <laughs> hospital environment. You don't use like fecal matter as a word, as an expression for well, shit. Well, same except... in the UK. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and but, they're yeah, obviously so playing. I... They're playing with this idea of sure. the abject yeah, and of this course. idea of grotesqueness. And again, mm-hmm. that kind of links to bodies and the fact that humans, bodies True. are human and bodies shit, you know, and we produce stuff into the world, into the environment. So we can't separate ourselves from it. Of course. But yeah, sorry, you were saying about no, they no, no, inspired you. Precisely because I was in the same context. I couldn't buy stuff, expensive stuff, just, I don't know, like sneakers or anything that was trendy at that time. So I was like, okay, I need to freestyle and to improvise with stuff I find. And I have to make a piece of, I don't know, I I eat a bag of chips and I have to make something nice with that empty bag of chips. I have to make it sparkle and be interesting, like aesthetically in a manner. So the recycling or upcycling came to me because I had zero budget, first of all. And also because I didn't see myself buying stuff to just wear it, take a picture and not use it anymore or try to use it. But because I bought it and I want to, I don't know how to say rentabilize, make something from it because I bought it, you know, it felt wrong. And there's also another thing about the sustainable. I tried to not do stuff like burning plastics or that kind of stuff. I did something once with old cups, plastic cups. And I create like a sort of mask by burning it slowly on the candle and melt the plastic and give it a shape. And I was quite proud of the result at the time. But today I'm like, I won't burn plastic in my house anymore because, I don't know, it feels wrong. It feels wrong in terms of ecology, even if I'm probably doing lots of stuff that are even worse, like eating meat or taking the plane, you know. (laughs) But I eat meat and I take the plane because this is my real life. And in my artistic life, It's not the real life, you know, it's like a space where I can decide and I decide to be sustainable in that space there. This is what Mm. feels aligned with my values, actually. So this is also another reason why I try to pursue that sustainability in my creations process. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's super cool. And this research and development 
element is this idea of Proxima going through different series and evolving. And that element of sustainability feels very in tune with what's going on in the world and very aligned with ethical, sustainable, environmental kind of activism. You know, how do we move forward into this advancing technologized future, but still look after the planet? So I feel like that's a really nice way of connecting those elements. Some of your artwork, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about nature that inspires you and you were inspired by other artists like Fecal Matter. I also noticed that you had some of your kind of stories or conversations were about something called, you're going to have to correct me if I'm saying it incorrectly, emetophobia. Emetophobia? Emetophobia, yeah. How do I say it? Emetophobia, I guess, in English. Emetophobia. Yeah, in French, it's emetophobie. I noticed you were talking about that and I thought, oh, what's that? And I Googled it. And it's an intense phobia of vomiting, which you can develop at an early age. And all of a sudden, I looked at your artwork in a really different way because a lot of your art involves your face and things kind of coming out of your face. And it doesn't look like vomit, the kind of organic substance, but I can see how there's some kind of inspiration or relation with that. And I wanted to ask, you know, if you're happy to talk more about that and how that's affected you and your work and your relationship with your body. Yeah, we can talk about this. First of all, I'm very thankful of the fact that you looked to my art differently as soon as you found that element. Where did you find it, actually? Did I mention it, like, very frontally? I can't remember now exactly where. I think I've seen it mentioned a couple of times in your stories, your Instagram stories. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. That's such a big thing to go through. Your your art definitely looks like it's been influenced by it. Yeah. Is it maybe the reason why I wanted to create in the first place? And all the things I'm saying all the time, like post-human, fantasy, cyberpunk, maybe it's just the way of coding the reality, you know? Coding, not code, like the... Do you mean like computer coding? Or you mean coating? Coating. Adding a layer. Adding a layer of sparkle and beauty on top of stuff that I find absolutely vile, maybe. I don't know, maybe I guess artists make a lot of things and go like in so many directions and work with colors and textures and materials that they do so much, so much artistic noise because they just can't express something that can be maybe summarized in one word, just written on a piece of paper. Maybe this is subconsciously, this is what I'm doing since the beginning. Maybe I started with all like the cyberpunk, posthuman aesthetics, trying to put my body and face in certain positions etc but maybe what is driving me since the beginning is just to tell the world that i used to suffer or i'm still suffering of emetophobia and that is so hard for me or it was at the time and maybe this was a way for me to express it by doing so so much complicated stuff but maybe It should have been easier to just tell the world very directly that I'm suffering from this and that it's fucking hard. Maybe. Maybe my artistic movement is just like a way of telling without telling. It's a way, I think it's the case because I'm always saying that I want to show, not to tell. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking about this because I feel like this is a phobia that probably a lot of people suffer from. 
Yeah, and it's, it's extremely common because I did a therapy for like years, six years, I think, seven. It's not over, you know. And my therapist, she told me that it was one of the most common phobia right after agoraphobia, you know, when you're like scared of crowds. A lot of people, oh, you know. yeah, agoraphobia. Yeah, exactly. And also just under claustrophobia, you know, when you're scared of small spaces. Exactly. Yeah. And it was especially very common among young boys. It was more like a masculine thing, maybe. So, yeah, oh, it's very common. But, yeah, it's quite common, actually. But you don't really hear about it. Well, exactly. I think that the fact that it's so common means that so many people will have felt so lonely yeah. with having this phobia. And phobias are so awful because it takes so long to rewire your brain. Yeah. You know, your, your brain automatically makes these tracks, these grooves get embedded over and over again, and they get deeper and deeper. And your brain will just go down that route as soon yeah. as something reminds it of it. So phobias are so difficult to break. And I think that you were saying there about why don't I just talk about it really simply rather than make my art? And you were kind of hinting at the fact that maybe your art is just a distraction. But I feel like you are directly talking about mm -hmm. your emetophobia. Yeah. And you are expressing it in a way that's much more accessible mm -hmm. because it's you create this really beautiful artwork. And I think that it's through art that these kind of deep conversations and mm -hmm awareness can happen because I think yeah. art just shines a light on so many important things yeah so I don't think you should by any means do your art a disservice by saying it's like a distraction and maybe you should just get to the point I think that you are getting to the point and it's, oh, it's done you. really beautifully thank you so much but it must have been such a difficult thing to go through and do you feel like it's created a very specific relationship with your body Oh, yeah, definitely. Of course. Phobia is something that, so you said the definition is like a fear of vomiting, but there is like different layers in emetophobia. Some people that are very sensitive to like dry having, I think it's called dry having. Oh, dry heaving. Dry heaving, yeah. There is different kind of layers, but of course, layers and colors of emetophobia, you know, of course, it's related to so much things deeply rooted inside of you, such as like body image, relationship with food, relationship with your body, your relationship with others, your self-esteem, and all of them are linked together with this like emetophobia software inside of me. This is like the way my body, my mind, my heart, etc. You're not born as an emetophobe, but I guess like stuff happened and I made like a, an upgrade in my software and the upgrade was iOS emetophobia, you know? <laughs> and yeah, since I started the therapy, I tried to make another upgrade to get out of it, get out of the bugs and things that are not working with emetophobia and the things that are interfering with my self-esteem and my relationship to others, my relationship with my body, my relationship with food and I think, you know, when you do a therapy, it's like even going to rehab, you know, like the first day you get, to, okay, this is like one, one step the first day, then the next step is three days, and then it's one week, and then it's, I don't know, one month sober, etc. you know, and you have to go through those steps with pain, and you win little steps by little, you know, and this is what happens when you cure a phobia, mine, but any other phobia, you know. And I think my art and my pictures on Instagram are like a mark in the time, like an archive of a certain step of my therapy related to trinitophobia, you know. And this is why today I'm more okay with presenting my body from a wider angle, showing more body parts, not trying to look good. Because when I started, I was okay with like my art being like a bit weird, etc. But I didn't want to look ugly, you know. 
which is probably something that is different from me to, for example, Figal Mother. I'm not saying that they are ugly, not at all. They're beautiful, but they are like more okay with the themes of like disease or deformation, that kind of stuff, mm. you know. They play with notions of the grotesque, don't they? Exactly. And they, they mm -hmm. challenge ideas about around beauty, in a mm -hmm. sense, and a and lot I, of post-human artists do. But yeah. I think actually what you're saying about that sense of ego, I'm really glad you said it because I think ev everybody actually, almost everybody, has an, an element of that in them that they don't want to they don't want to look ugly and they mm -hmm. don't want to, you know, I completely understand that. So thank you for saying that because I think a lot of people yeah. would say, no, it's art. You need to take the ego out of it. But I think that's it's hard very to hard. Do. It's very hard. Now I'm more okay with looking ugly or looking not in my the most flattering angles, I would say that way. But also we see less and less my face in my art. So yeah. Mm, what not, do you think I, that means? It's also easier for me lately. I, I feel like I don't want to put my face first. You know, if you look at the composition of my earliest work, you will see that they really look like portraits. They didn't really change from what Mona Lisa was looking like. You know, it was like very three quarter angle like this, you know, with that flattering angle, not this one, you know. And um, I did pretty much everything I could do with my face. I'm not looking any better as time passes. I'm also tired to choose my haircuts and beard cuts because, okay, so tomorrow I have free time and I want to do something. It was hard to, to synchronize my alter ego with my real me. And, and yeah, so this is the reason why it's easier to hide my face, but also is because I'm taking wider angles and showing more body parts. I can play with like movements and more complex compositions. And I've been very inspired by movement. Recently, I'm reconnecting with the, one of my earliest passion, which is like dance and movement in general. And the portraits are very fixed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so showing more body and less my face is working with that movement a little bit more. And this is what feels right and aligned with, with what I'm trying to say lately, artistically. So, yeah. And there is a real change. You know, I did scroll down to see your earlier work. And it's almost like your earlier work it could fall more easily into the category of drag in the sense that there's a relationship with adornment makeup yeah. jewelry and this performativity yeah and then it feels like you know not to put drag down i think drag is a fantastic art form but i don't feel like your art is drag because it's much more it's a, it's actually not completely performative is it it's so connected to you and your life and your sense of self and your phobia and yes so in a way, it kind of can't be defined as drag because it moves beyond just being a performance. It's much more kind of lived and embodied. Yeah. But there is clearly a, a definite shift in your, your creative output from your earlier work, which I love your earlier work as well, but there's definitely a changing, evolving, developing kind of sense. What was it that got you into kind of making these quite dramatic makeup looks or more drag looks at the beginning? At the beginning, I think I was more influenced by the field of fashion. I, I just talked about my the influence and the acquaintances I have with dance and movement. But I think at that time when I started, I was really into like fashion design and I wanted to bring something more in, into that field. And I guess this is why my earliest work looks more like drag. And it's also when you don't have the references, you know, just it, it's like when you look back at your looks when you were like a, a teenager, for example. Yeah. And you we, cringe, you're like, oh God. And you cringe and you, like we all 
had an emo phase, for example, but where we used to live, we didn't find like real emo clothes. So we tried to do what we could with boring stuff. And maybe also because at that time, you couldn't like just scroll Instagram to get inspirations. You know, you had to add a bit of your own sensibility to it. And uh, yeah, I see my earlier work like this. I was trying to do something, but I was distracting by all the stuff that I did to look cool. So you were, you feel like the ego was bigger then as well? Exactly. Exactly. You talk about my art way better than me. I don't have the words in English too. <laughs> it's but yeah, also like, your first language is French. So I mean, yeah. I'm in awe that your English is fantastic. So I try my um, best. <laughs> If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes and take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. So you're based in Switzerland, aren't you? Yeah, I was born and raised in Switzerland. My parents are both Italian immigrants, but I was born and raised in Switzerland. So yeah, my first language is French and Italian. So English must be your third language. Yeah, I would say fourth because I learned like German first at school, but I'm like way better in English than in German. Most of the people that speak French in Switzerland, they don't have a very high level of German. English is pretty much wow. everywhere. And I also, I, I lived in hey. Stockholm for a year and I did a bit of my studies in English. So this is obviously something that helped me in my English knowledge. God, it's so impressive. Thank you. What were you studying in Sweden? In Sweden, I was still continuing with my history bachelor at the time, history and French. But since you cannot find like precisely the same courses, you can pretty much choose anything that is related to your main discipline. And so I had, except like a master level course of French, I had a course on Swedish ethnography, which we would call like anthropology in French. I think we prefer oh, anthropology. anthropology. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like Swedish ethnography in the first semester. And the second one, the second semester, I was in the cinema institute. And uh, so it was like a course in cinema studies uh, that was like a pretty much post-colonial perspective in uh, audio and visual medias. So pretty much all the, the movies that talk about the post-colonial stuff, think about like Pocahontas, for example, or some Western, not with the guns, you know, Western movies. Tell me. What made you want to go over to Sweden to finish? I don't know. I think I always had like that fantasy, even when I was younger, just imagine yourself doing like a cultural exchange. You know, Switzerland is a very small country and even Europe looks pretty exotic to us. Europe is always like a bigger things, like subconsciously. So I think I always had that want and need to take a year and spend it abroad during my studies. And in university in Europe, you have of course, as you know, the opportunity to do this with Erasmus, you know? I did Erasmus in Copenhagen. Oh, that's awesome. I've been to Copenhagen when I was in Stockholm too, you know? When was it? I'll show my age now, but probably I think it was in 2010. Okay. I, it was, for me, it was like in 2014 or 15. But yeah, so I think at the time I felt the need to do something abroad, maybe to be alone. I think subconsciously there is like something. Yeah. And when you say about this kind of being alone, was there this awareness in you that you had this phobia to work through? And do you think that I mean, had you started your therapy then or were you kind no. of maybe trying to escape something? I think at that time, 
I was starting to realize that something was off, but it was not the first time, of course. I, I guess I've had this phobia since a very long time. We worked through it with my therapist and we decided that my earliest souvenir with this sense of fear of puking, etc. The first time I had this was, I was like four or five, you know, so it's wow. very young maybe six, but you know, like very young age. So there is like several moments in my life through all my ages that where I felt that something was odd. But maybe at that time in 2014, I was at university since two years. I was, it was hard for me to really follow like a, a sane, like a healthy rhythm. I was partying a lot, pretty much not going to school because I was pretending at the time that I didn't care. I was also kind of scared of the situation because when you have emetophobia you're you also have a bit of claustrophobia you know because if you have to vomit you have to go out you know and find a place where you can vomit usually the toilet the toilets, yeah the toilet and to go to the toilets you have to be able to go out to escape and you are if you are like in a cramped space with people around and i remember th there was this precise classroom that was so scary because I had lessons all the time there. They were not like individual chairs. You have to, uh, you know, like put the chairs down and go in. Oh, yeah. And if someone yeah, comes... Yeah, so they kind like, of fold out. Yeah, exactly. And if someone comes like on your right, you're trapped in the middle. And if you want to go out, I... you cannot get out because you have the desk here. You're trapped between the mm -hmm. desk and the people on your right and left. And if you want to escape, you have to get out of your chair, not be like too fat or too humanly bodied. And, and also, you probably feel self-conscious that you're making a scene and yeah. everyone can see that you're standing up and that you're exactly. leaving the room. And you have to ask if I feel sick suddenly, because this is this is the daily life of someone that has emetophobia. You're scared of vomiting like every second with no reason. Mm. But adults in general, functioning adults, don't vomit all the time. Unless you have food poisoning or something that's a yeah, big deal. Of course. And this is very rare. And even when you all the people that had food poisoning, they never like puked on someone's face. Maybe yeah. some people they did, but those people aren't dead. And they're not burning in the flames. They survived. Of, yeah, exactly. They survived, yeah. of course. And way worse stuff happened than just, okay, I was sick and I vomit on my feet. You know, this is like very like low-key daily stuff. You know? Yeah, but with but, phobias, you can't control it, can exactly. you? In, it's like when they talk about PTSD. Yeah. And I think the older generation, some of them would be like, you know, people who go to war get PTSD and you don't know how good your life is and stop being a snowflake and pull yourself together. But the thing is, a phobia or PTSD, it doesn't discriminate who it chooses. And you have no choice and no option. Yeah. And it's not your fault. You know, of course, there's worse stuff in the world that happens. But that doesn't mean that your phobia just goes away because you have knowledge of that. Of course. And this is exactly the therapy I followed, post-traumatic therapy, among other things. But this is pretty much like the main direction of this therapy, where you have to rewire your brain. And it's like actually neurology, you know, like you have to disconnect some stuff in your brain and to reconnect them to the good outlets. You almost um, have to scramble it somehow, don't you? Yeah, of course. And I think they use REM REM therapy, rapid eye movement. Exactly. And they have this therapy where they'll talk to you and get you to kind of go through the scene of the traumatic event. Yeah. And at the same time, they're asking you to follow their finger across the room. So your eyes are moving constantly. And apparently that sort of helps to scramble the memory somehow and help you move forward. This is, this is what I, I mean, did. I'm no but expert, but... <laughs> this is pretty much what happens. I'm not expert either, but we did 
REM, I think. In French, it's called EMDR, E-M-D-R, whatever. It's not with the eyes. It's maybe she has like another way of doing it, but it was with sounds. I had a headset with little clicks, like tic-tac, tic-tac in my head, and two like pods in my hands that were vibrating in synchronicity with the ticks. That was just weird to me to stand there and to try to reconnect to something. And it was so hard. She was like, okay, what do you feel? I'm like, I feel I'm feeling nothing. I'm on my chair, you know? But this is what going through phobia therapy is. You can't reconnect to stuff because you don't allow it. You don't allow yourself to feel. And this is linked to what I was saying before. Since I was not going to class because I was so scared to vomit, especially in that old classroom in old university in Switzerland, the very few times I went to university, so it's always like deep breath, not even deep breath, because I was unable to breathe healthily at that time. I was always like holding a breath all the time without even knowing it. So of course you start to get dizzy and you're like, okay, I'm dizzy, so I'm gonna vomit. It's crazy. It's, it's an escalation of things. And, and the first thing I had to do in therapy was to relearn how to feel my body, especially my stomach, because the stomach is uh, an organ, I guess. And mm -hmm. it speaks, it says stuff. We often say that it's the, like the second brain. So sometimes you will feel like, you feel all the time stuff in your in your stomach. Oh, sometimes 100%, you, you, you yeah. Yeah, sometimes you feel hungry, sometimes you feel, I don't know, scared, angry. Is this yeah. digestion? Did I eat too much? Did I not eat oh too much? Oh my goodness, is completely, when I'm nervous, I always yeah. know because my stomach tightens. If I'm nervous or anxious, I lose my appetite completely and I find it yeah. really difficult to eat. But it's, I think some people get it more with their head. Mm -hmm. You know, their head, they get headaches or they... Headaches, it's right, yeah. Their head will tell them when they're stressed and other people, it's their, their gut. Yeah. And I completely relate to that, that my, my gut mm -hmm. will tell me how I'm feeling before my brain mm -hmm. will. And you are able to identify this. But when you have this phobia, you're like, your stomach becomes an enemy. You know, mm. like my stomach was my enemy. And so as soon as he was talking to me, let's put it that way. As soon as my stomach was talking to me, I was like, shut up. Don't make noise. Don't move. Do nothing. And for example, the don't, the don't move thing, when you breathe, your stomach moves. Like the di diaphragm, you know, diaphragm, you know, mm. the muscle of the... Your diaphragm. Uh, exactly. It moves. Your stomach or like the zone, like the belly zone. <clears throat> has to move when you are just breathing, like in a healthy manner. Yeah. And since I, I wanted no inputs from my stomach, I wasn't breathing all right. And so I had to relearn to engage in conversation with my stomach and to identify what he was talking to me. And this is something that I still mm. do today because I'm almost cured with this. I think it's always a bit there like a eating disorder because of course I had eating disorder. This pretty much stays forever, you know, but you can deal with it and not make it like an enemy or don't don't let you it don't control your life. It. Yeah. It still happens to me sometimes. For example, last Friday I had a job interview which is like the, the most like the scariest part. When I started this therapy, I was like, okay, if one day I'm able to make job interviews, I will be so happy, you know, and now I can make them like quite easily. And I'm walking to the job interview. And, That's amazing. Thank you. And I am engaging a conversation with my stomach. I'm like, what am I feeling in my stomach right now? Just engage in the conversation and let the stomach be a stomach and talk to you and give you hints on your health and how you're feeling. It was one of the first steps I had to do in therapy. So it's pretty much like yeah. making peace with your body. Making peace with your body, but also such a reconnection that you, yeah. it sounds like you had with your body. Going from telling your stomach to shut up 
and yeah. not listening to it and holding your breath that must have made you feel so disconnected from yeah. your sense of self and this i think a lot of what your art seems to be about is this reconnection with your body yeah and it's almost like you're learning to love your body again or yeah. learning to love your body from the beginning and you can really see that come through in your art. It's almost like your art is your therapy. You're using your art as your therapy. And it's there's an auto-ethnographic relationship with your art. Mm -hmm. Your art is kind of showing and revealing the stages of your recovery and the stages yeah. of your healing process That's and this very well said. with your body. Yeah. Say it again. How did you say my art is? It's auto-ethnographic. Yeah. Is that the bit? Yeah. No, it was the bit and like right, right after this auto-ethnographic relationship in that your art is your therapy and every stage of your art reflects this reconnecting with your body. Exactly, yeah. Every stage, hence the season one, season two, season three that I get rid of in my biography on Instagram. It was pretty much also to, uh, first of all, to express the like aesthetic changes. Okay, so we are seeing less faces, more body or less cyber, more like earthy stuff. But it's also... It was maybe the numbers of years of my therapy, subconsciously. And it's also where I think I am, at which stage I am in the therapy, you know. And I'm very mm. far. I can say, like, if I was like a drug addict, I would say today I'm sober, you know. Today I'm sober of emetophobia because I'm very functioning and I can do pretty much everything. And I try to be very grateful of all the little things that I'm able to do today that I wasn't before. For example, this weekend I went skiing and we let the car below the ski tracks and like a bus took it up. And so a bus, it's a cramped space. Plus it's moving, mm. you can get like dizzy, etc. And when I saw the bus arrived, I was happy. I was like, okay, so we're going to take the bus. We're not going to walk in the snow, lifting like we carrying the skis and the materials. I was happy. And before, like five, six, seven years before, if I went skiing and I saw the bus coming, I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. You know, like this, <laughs> I would prefer like to walk and die in the cold than just getting into a bus where people are close to me, etc. And six years later, I see a bus. I'm like, oh yeah, the bus. Awesome. And this is like... Very, Shows very... how far you've come. Yeah. Yeah. I, I made so much progress. Congratulations Thank on, that, you. on that progress. That's, <laughs> Thank you I so mean, much. it's huge because it's so debilitating on your life. Yeah. And yeah. it took you to recognize the problem and get yourself to therapy. Yeah. Find a way through and cope. I'm so happy that you've managed to do that. Thank and you I so am, much. I do think that you talking about this here today, which I'm really grateful that you have, and on your Instagram, I just think it's so important for other people to hear that. Do you have people yeah. kind of reaching out to you who are, you know, like-minded people or people who've had a similar experience? Not a lot. I think lots of people have it without knowing. They don't realize that they have it because I'm always like very implicit with it, not very explicit. Like I said before, I prefer showing that telling, but I show like in such a discreet manner and just hints here and there. So it's kind of hard for people to understand. And also it's, it's not very known as a phobia. Well, I was thinking as well, you said earlier that it's particularly common in men yeah. and obviously within society internationally, but very much in the West, there's this kind of culture of masculinity where yeah. men don't really talk about their feelings or talk about mm -hmm. things that are happening to them that are negative. So it's probably tangled up with that in a sense that a lot of guys might have it. It's very common, but they don't talk about it. Yeah. And it's also a quite like shameful phobia. This 
phobia is related also to shame, like the cognitive schemes of this phobia, it's shame and rejection, which is like the hardest to get rid of it at the end. And uh, yeah, it's a phobia that not cringe, but you know, no one likes vomit in general. You know, no one likes bodily functions in general. And uh, it's like a disgusting, like a visually disgusting phobia. Mm. And uh, maybe men are less comfortable with sharing stuff that revolves around bodily functions, I guess. Well, this brings me back to what we were saying about fecal matter. Yeah. And, you know, this, do you know what I mean? But when I talk about the abject. Yeah. And the kind of the disgusting parts of life, yeah. you know, blood and guts and puke and shit and piss and birthing and all of these things which are considered really grotesque. Yeah. You know, fecal matter are, as an artistic duo, have chosen that name quite deliberately because yeah. it is abject and it relates to the abject. And the abject really relates to ideas of post-humanism because the humanist body was considered to be male and sealed and contained and very separate from the messy, unruly, disgusting outside world that was more like primitive and animal. And women were connected to nature because their bodies bleed and can birth. So men were very separate from all of this. So I think kind of this embracing of the abject and fecal matter embracing their name and you leaning towards embracing this phobia in a sense you're embracing what bodies really are what they've been denied to be for a long time but you're embracing what they truly are which is messy and often very gross you know they're not perfect and they are ugly and people have phobias and psychological issues and bodies can be gross but what you're doing I think is shining a light on the fact that it's like that's just that can be weirdly beautiful that mess you know the real mess of life phobias and puke and everything that is real life and real life is beautiful yeah Yeah, i think so being alive is okay real life and gross stuff in bodies are beautiful i don't think they are to be honest Uh, you you will never see me doing like performances where i vomit and i mix sculptures with it because vomit is beautiful this is (laughs) to me that that would look like an escape even artistically so okay i'm thinking like the most object thing and trying to coat it with a gold spray and okay so it's it's a piece of shit but with gold spray this would be boring and it would be a lie artistically and maybe too obvious too obvious but what i'm trying to i'm not trying to celebrate anything but if i'm trying to celebrate one thing is being alive and being free and this also Mm -hmm. means having bodily functions that are considered gross like if you're like taking a shit, it's at least the proof that you are alive and that everything is doing good for you. You know? Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> what you just said there, it's being alive and being free. Free to just be alive and yeah. enjoy life. Yeah. And your art, I think, plays with that and engages with that and reflects your journey really beautifully. So thank you for producing it. And I'm really excited to see more of it. Yeah. And thank you for sharing and talking so openly today. It was, I mean, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, to thank me you too. so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy that you like my heart. And I am very honored that you want to deconstruct it a bit and to understand what is behind it. Because this is also one of the reasons I started, because I had stuff to tell to the world. And I couldn't just go in the street and scream stuff because this is not what we can do. So I choose like the artistic field. And when someone asks me, okay, why do you do this? And what is behind it? feels I feel seen. And I think deep inside, it, I think it was one of my earliest goals. So thank you for seeing me.
And I hope you're happy with my answers and um, that I oh, that so my Engli English was enough because I think sometimes I can do better, you know, but yeah. Your English was perfect and it is perfect. Thanks for listening to this interview with Adriano Renner, known as Proxima on Instagram. So much love for Adriano, him, his art and this whole conversation. I want to thank him especially for being so patient through some tech teething issues I was having. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please follow the show for more.